Hello and a very warm welcome back to Words, the Bee Gees podcast. We're here for a bumper big episode, the first of two parts in which we'll be looking at the Bee Gees' 1969 loosely conceptual Red Velvet Flocked, originally called Masterpiece, double album Odessa. My name is Cristiano, I'm here as ever with my dad, Stuart. Yeah, hello everybody. Beginning where we left off with Idea, where are we now? We joined the Bee Gees in the beginning of August. They fly over to America, but unfortunately, due to Robin's uh, is diagnosed with a nervous exhaustion, they have to cancel four or five dates, including an appearance on the Tonight Show, which was, I think, is really big in America. So it's a little bit of a shame on that one. Around about the tenth of August, everything seems to be back on track, and the Bee Gees appear at New York's uh, Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. Also during this time. I got a message to you enters Billboard's top 100 listings. In Britain, the single also enters the charts today, so it's quite a good time. And as we'd mentioned in the previous podcast, it reaches uh, the grand uh, top of the pops at number one. Also, during this time, the sort of middle of the, of the tour, the group take a break and decide to go into Atlantic Studios in New York and commence work on what will become Odessa. And the first song I think they put down is Whisper Whisper. When was the first time that you heard Odessa? I can't remember. It was... I didn't buy it. You stole it? (laughs) Yeah. No, I think it was through um, Record Collector. I think I put an ad in for listing some singles that I I wanted, and one or two being Bee Gees, and somebody contacted me, and then obviously I replied back saying, have you got... And they said they got Odessa. So they did me a C90 cassette of, of Odessa and Life in a Tin Can. Was this the 80s? Yeah, uh, yes. I would think probably 85 mm-hmm. before all CDs come out. So it was obviously quite a difficult album to get hold of, especially in the original version the, with the sort of flock luxury feel of the album. It was great to see that luscious packaging brought back for the reissue in 2009. Yeah, one thing about that that, that I've really peeved at, I wish I brought the um, album at the time. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that goes for quite a bit of money at the, at the minute. So I know they did do for the reissues 2006. I think Rhino put out albums for that as well. So they're, they're going for quite a steep price as well. Unfortunately, this is the last, being the last of the 60s albums, this is also the last of these deluxe reissues. So from here onwards with uh, the Bee Gees albums going up to sort of Mr. Natural, we don't have the bonus discs, the, the guiding booklets to give us more information. Yeah, In this first part, we're going to be looking at all four sides of Odessa. And then in part two, we'll be looking at the album packaging, critical reception, comparing our scores out of 10 and giving our overall thoughts of Odessa. But most importantly, we'll then be going through all of the additional material, the unreleased tracks and the list of songs that they gave away to other artists. We'll sail on into the <laughs> first track on the first album. Nice little short number. At 7 minutes 30, Odessa, City on the Black Sea.
Well, Chris, this goes back to what we said on the last podcast about uh, the first track on each of the albums getting better and better. I mean, I've got to say, this this is a fabulous... Unlike anything that they've done before. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an ambitious opening for an album, isn't it? I mean, it's dramatic. I didn't even go as far as... It's cinematic. It's Grease Lightning. <laughs> <laughs> it's a story song, and that's very fitting for the loosely conceptual nature of this album. I mean, it sets the tone, doesn't it, for the yes. album? Yes. Now, with regards to it being a double album, there isn't, for me, there isn't much of a concept here. I suppose you could link something up, but as far as the story goes, I, I, I'm struggling with that one. The link that I get is that this is a story that's set some point in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century in America. There's a few references throughout the songs and also the opening of this song, 14th of February, 1899. Yeah. And a lot of the imagery and evokes that time period, as we'll go through. Yeah, and we, we even get uh, a quote from Barbar Blackshoot, don't we, on this one? Yeah. So we get a little bit of nursery rhyme thrown in. I would think if you deconstructed it, it's quite a simple song. You've got the opening flamenco guitar section, then that goes into the crying, mournful chorus. Yeah. Who plays the flamenco guitar on this one? This is Morris. Again, oh, okay. showing how amazing he is on instruments of all varieties. He's uh, picked up the flamenco guitar and he's playing a very evocative, sets the style and the mood of the song. I mean, Bill Shepard's all over this one, isn't he? Yeah. With regards to the arrangement of this song, there's a few timestamps that I've picked out. The first is around 2 minutes 16, just before the chorus, when all of the harmonies come in to back Robin's mournful cry. And then again just after five minutes with the reprise of the chorus. And the song is elevated into this incredible, ethereal dimension. I don't know how else to describe it. And it's one of those breathtakingly magical moments that only seems to happen when the three brothers, their voices all harmonise and come together. But it's after the first chorus, at around 3 minutes 20, and the song starts to slow down, anticipating the change. Yeah, I think it's a link into the next part of the song. This is something that, in big, grander scale songs like this, bands such as Genesis, who are very regularly doing songs, 7 minutes plus... I mean, it's something they knock off at 7 minutes is quite a short one for them. Yeah, <laughs> Tony Banks from Genesis has often said in interviews how in order to keep the listener engaged, a simple trick to do is to have a slow section or a loud section followed by a quieter or a faster section. And this song is an example of that. There's the flamenco guitar opening section, which then goes into the crying chorus. And then that goes into a stately lilt is the best way that I can describe it. It's the cherub. I lost a ship on the Baltic Sea section and then that goes back into a repeat of the chorus and then back into the flamenco guitar. So it's a change of volume, building tension, building the melodrama of the piece. 
And I think that's why, even though this is a seven and a half minute piece, it doesn't feel bloated. It continues to build through and constantly gets better and better and better. I mean, is it, I don't think there is a longer BG song than this one on, on the whole catalogue. I don't think there is. The demo version runs to six minutes 50. That's because it has a shorter outro than what the final version would end up having with the instrumental dark chorus section. There aren't too many differences between the demo and the final version. Mostly the early version, as expected, is a lot more stripped back. There's less of that polished arrangement and instrumentation, more emphasis on the flamenco guitar. But the basic structure, the verse, the chorus, uh, the middle section, it's all there. The main thing is is the beginning, isn't it? Yeah. The ship has a different name. We're going from On Strauss in the demo and then being renamed to Veronica in the final version. And I think is the year different as well. Yeah, that's different as well for some reason. It goes from 1866 in the demo to 1899 in the final version. From 1860, so they, they sort of jump 33 years. I don't know why the year changed or the name of the ship was changed from On Strauss to Veronica, but it all adds to the mythology and the backstory of this song. And and I really like that. It's world building. It's it's immersing you into the world. You're learning about this ship, its name, when it set off on its doomed voyage. I really like that. From six minutes onwards, we're taken into a really a, a dark and ominous progression. Uh, but then this builds the tension amazingly back into a reprise of the opening coda, which comes back with the flamenco guitar and that's the spoken it. word. Sort of a full aversion, isn't it? And in the demo, that spoken word, I can't tell whether it's Barry or Morris saying, or talking about the ship. I think it's Barry. Yeah, I'm sure it's, I'm an, sure it's Barry. Quite an affected um, European yeah. accent on That ship on Strauss was lost at sea off the British Royal Register of Shipping. There were no survivors. There is Gregorian chanting, which fits in with the Northern Europe, and it goes back to the demo with the Dutch ship on Strauss. So it's part of the world building still. Yeah. From the lyrics, I'm also getting a sense of cynicism, a bit of witty cynicism, And I see that in the section, one passing ship gave word that you've moved out of your old flat, you love the vicar more than words can say, tell him to pray that I won't melt away and I'll see your face again. You love the vicar more than words can say, is this his partner seeing off with the vicar or is he just, he's naive and believes that his wife loves the vicar and that she's faithful to God? So oh, it's, it's, I'll go it, with the second. A bit of cynicism yeah, on the church. Yeah. I think it probably would be this, the latter, to be honest with you. But uh, but very cleverly put together. Yeah. We bring that back at, later on. You love that thicker more than words can say. And then I love with him being on the iceberg. Ask him to pray that I won't melt away and I'll see your face again. We get a response to that in the next song because you'll never see my face again. But this is a the, the coda that opens and closes the song, 14th of February, 1899. It's almost like you're opening up a book to the, looking at the 14th of February. You're getting this whole story about this lost sailor on trapped on the iceberg and then how time goes by. Back to that closing coda, we're closing the book. It's the impression that it gives to me. British ship, Veronica, was 
Robert Stingworth thought this was probably his favourite Bee Gees song up to that point. Obviously, with Robin on vocal, I think there was intention to release this as a single. They would need to have truncated that. I would like to hear how they would have cut that down. They've edited it because, I mean, I suppose with, with Hey Jude a few months earlier, and that was that broke all records, that was a really long one. I think Mary Hopkins, Those Were the Days, wasn't a short song either. So I thought, probably thought the Bee Gees could, could do something. It all got postponed because of the... Um, uh, I started a joke in America. And I, th- I think with it reaching number six, it got um, it did really well. So things got postponed. And, and I should think in the meantime, the two other songs, First of May and Lamplight, Robin eventually left the group, mm. hoping that Odessa was going to be the lead single with him as the main vocalist. Then obviously, if that one didn't come out, he would he would get the limelight instead with Lamplight. But <laughs> then everything gets uh, swapped around, and he's he's reverted to the B side. But I, to me, we'll, we'll say a bit later on. But I, I class that as a double A. Yeah, I agree with you. We've been discussing this song now for some time, and I still don't feel as though we've really scratched the surface as to what this song is about and the meanings that can be drawn from within it. It's such a grand, majestic, wonderful, magnum opus, and it really sets the tone for the album. It's superb. What have your scores for this one? It's absolute perfection. A 10 out of 10. It's a 10 for me on this. You think that you can stand in there? It makes me laugh. You got no friends. It took a thousand years to find out why You'll never see my face again you know that Well, that was You'll Never See My Face Again. This was recorded on the 17th of October, which, funny enough, was recorded the same time as Odessa, or the first recording of Odessa. What do you think to it? This is a very plaintive song. Perhaps Barry, through the lyrics and the subject matter of the song, maybe he's channeling some of the the frustrations and the tensions that you might be feeling during this period because this is an era in the Bee Gees which was fraught with tension, disagreements. I I did read, I can't remember who said it, but they said they felt the tension in the previous album. And it's during sessions for Odessa or thereabouts that we lose Vince from the band. I can understand why this would be the album where he would choose to leave, because electric guitar isn't prominent at all. I know we're only the second track in, but I know what's to come, and there isn't anything much at all, is there? So obviously, apart from just wandering around the studio and helping other bits and pieces, it's it probably felt that he could be more creative doing something different. You know, he probably had ideas he, he wants to achieve, having spent sort of two or three years with the Bee Gees. When listening to You'll Never See My Face Again, I noticed that Barry's singing has developed by this point and he's settling into a vocal style that will carry through the early 70s albums, whether you agree. Yeah, yeah, I, I do to a point. I mean, for me, this is it's sort of a mid-paced song. Yeah, it put me in mind of the songs that Barry would go on to do for his uh, unreleased solo album, The Kid's No Good, This Time, The Victim... Nowhere near as good as the victim, but that style. Yeah, it, it seems it's booked out with the orchestra that sort of filled it out a, a bit. I don't know, there's, there's just something missing for me, and the, I think there's a lack of harmonies mm. on this one. 
But like you said, Chris, with Barry's vocal, for me it's the it's the saving grace. Yeah. On this track. Looking through these recordings, it seems that the Mellotron was the go-to instrument for early demos. Robin would often sit at a Mellotron or Morris to pad out some chords to find out where they're going, and then the Mellotron would be swapped for piano and more traditional okay, arrangements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What have you uh, scored this song? Definitely not as high as the last one. I've gone for a uh, six. I'm the same as you. Yeah, okay. If we're looking for ways in which this album could all be one continuous story and one concept, then Black Diamond could be interpreted as being from the perspective of the sailor, the same sailor who is the protagonist of the song Odessa who sets sail on the ship Veronica. Black Diamond could be a metaphor for Odessa, city on the Black Sea, but that's open to interpretation. So I I view it like that whenever I'm trying to see Odessa as one continuous piece. It could be that. Oh, okay. I hadn't hadn't thought of that. And there is a difference with the early version on the bonus disc. We've got instead of he was leaving in the morning, it was I was or I will be leaving in the autumn. So there's a change of perspective from he was to I will. And we've got the change from morning to autumn. Okay, because that was... Well, I think that was an early demo. Obviously, when they got into the group together, because I assume this is a, um, a group-composed song, and they obviously wanted to play around the lyrics and just readapt them. And there's a fine backing vocal from Barry demonstrating how well his voice blends with Robin, despite the differences in their style of singing. In the backing track, you can hear uh, Barry thickening out the, the mix with... Uh, uh, echoing the lead vocal from Robin. Of course, they're brothers, aren't they? So you, we've seen them numerous times when they when they all, all three gather around a microphone. It, it it's just Magic. melts into one voice, doesn't it? The opening lyrics of Black Diamond read, "Where are you? I love you. Where are you? I love you. Where are you to keep me warm?" I was trying to rack my brains and think of which other songs, which other BG songs that we've looked at so far have opened with a question in the lyrics. Mm, that's a good question, Chris. So we're looking at sort of 67 onwards, aren't we? Yeah. Gosh, I can't, I can't think of one. No, no, I can't. The only one I can think of is called uh, Where Are You, which I think goes back to one of the Australian songs, which would be around about 66. Mm-hmm. Where are you? Night is day and day is night. And... Something else that stood out to me with this song was how much Robin is singing from the back of his throat, from the back of his tongue, and it adds to the melancholy.
Right, we often mention arrangements on Bee Gees songs. I see on this one it's got Paul Buckmaster on cello. Um, he was quite well known or quite popular in the early 70s for working with Elton John. Mm-hmm. And he did a really good job. Obviously, he earned his crust on, on some of the early stuff like this. Was this another October recording? It was, because the other two were October, weren't they? This one, again, was, I think, around about the 3rd of October. And then shortly afterwards, they, they head over to Europe and they open a tour in Amsterdam. And then they also fly to Copenhagen for do some TV work. Still promoting idea? I think they must be, yeah. So, and then I think they go over to Sweden as well and are scheduled to form a concert there. Well, I've got a quote here where Robin, Robert Stingwood orders Robin to get his hair cut. <laughs> Bit of a bizarre thing, isn't it? And then Robin says, I've got no intention of getting my hair cut. I like it this way. After all, even Jesus had his hair long. Also, Barry says at this time that he, he, he still liked to go into films and leave the group scene. They're still determined, aren't they? Yeah. To, whether they think they, oh, they saw the Beatles do the early Hard Day's Night in the middle of, you know, during their first role of fame, wasn't it? Then Help and then Magical Mystery Tour, which I know the Bee Gees were quite critical of. But obviously they've still got plans. Critical because they didn't write it. Yeah. <laughs> Mid-October, the Bee Gees fly from Vienna to London in hopes of doing some more touring, again in Germany. But this time, the enemy reports that Barry's poor health halts these efforts. Nevertheless, the brothers managed to tape several undated tracks during the month of October with engineers. These titles, I believe, is Morris's first solo composition since leaving Australia. And it's called How Can You Tell? Which I think later becomes Suddenly. Yep. In the second half of Black Diamond, the song changes almost completely and we go into Old Lang Syne. Oh, the New Year's Eve. Yeah, which is, for anyone unaware, that is the song that, well, it was a Scottish folk song translating to For Old Time's Sake that is, as you said, very traditional yeah. for New Year's Eve. Yeah, it's, it's an unusual turn for the song to take. But I really like it. Yeah, I do. It adds something to the song, doesn't it? Yeah. And with Black Diamond, that brings us to the end of side one. A short side, but then consider that... So literally, or well, I suppose if Odessa's seven minutes long, yeah, that's, that's equivalent to a couple of songs, isn't it? Then You're looking at about this album, I think, averages 15 to 20 minutes a side, because yeah. side two has five tracks. Because Black Diamond uh, seems, seems quite a long track as well. Is that, what does that come in at? Black Diamond comes in at three and a half minutes. Oh, it surprises me. I think probably because there's two segments to the song as well, it feels longer. And you'll never see my face again. That's four and a half minutes, which oh, is longer okay. than I thought it went yeah, on Yeah, yeah. Well, I've gone with a seven on this one. I'm also with you there on a seven, leading us on to side two, Marley Pert Drive. Well, this is one of those tracks that we said earlier was recorded in New York. Actually, the engineer, when, when they started to sing, he says that, uh, he says, 
and now we'll do Marley Put Drive area code 213. Reference to Los Angeles telephone code. Oh, okay. I mean, the song does mention they're going for a Sunday drive, don't they? On, on either the 134 or the 210 freeway or something? Yeah, down Pasadena, which is a suburb around the California area. Yeah. There's a great feel and dryness to the drumming on this song, so full kudos to Colin. I think he does an excellent job here. I think we've even got a banjo on this one, haven't we? Yes. Would you say this is sort of a country rock? I'm going to guess that this is predominantly Barry writing it. Yeah, I mean... Just with the style of the song. This because... style, I would say, would you think is probably a precursor to Cucumber Castle? Yeah, we'd seen it before as well, Barry dipping into this American bluesy style with End of My Song. Yeah. Whenever he's in America. Yeah, I think we mentioned that on the first podcast, didn't we? That's right. The link between the two. He always seems to be inspired by whenever he's in America. I mean, it's also worth noting, Chris, that because it's an August recording, I think we might still have Vince... With the band. Yeah. I detect a uh, steel guitar, whether that's him or not, I, I don't know. I think they went and re-recorded it again with slightly different lyrics back in London. So whether his guitar was erased from that or whether kept Overdubbed. It, yeah, overdubbed, I don't know. Going ahead all the way to 1991, Marley Put Drive may have been considered for inclusion within that set list of the tour that was promoting High Civilization because it was done in the soundcheck. Yes, and, yeah. And it was rehearsed alongside words, they do the opening piano lick, and also words of a fool. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Which then found its way onto Greenfield's yeah. one. But it's a song I would, have, I would have loved to have heard when I went to see them. And it shows that Barry continued to really like the song, to be rehearsing it then, yeah. where then over 20 years later. Yeah, and it would have been nice for you to have seen it then, for them to have pulled it out in the 1991 tour. For this one, I've gone with a six. Well, funny enough, so have I. Exactly the same. The song's got a great ending, and this was um, arranged with help from Bill Shepard. Yeah, I think I've got it here, actually, that uh, Bill Shepard will also conduct orchestration for the song's ending. Yeah. It's got a nice fade out, still going with Colin's groove on the drums. Yeah, which leads some harmony, ooze and ice in the harmonies. Yeah, and I think that's quite nice because it leads quite nicely into the next next song, which we'll play, which is Edison, or if you want it, another version, Barbara came to stay. He made electric lights to read. He gave us light of day He gave us cylinders to please When Edison came to stay Barbara came today Barbara came today Oh, what a girl The early version of this song, known as Barbara Came to Stay, was 
That was the last recording they did in New York. Oh, OK, Lanzarote. yeah. And then obviously they must have decided then to uh, go and change all the lyrics. I'm assuming that with Barbara that's a reference to their mum. Yeah. So whether she did come to stay with them, I don't know. But uh, obviously she didn't stay for very long because they decided to change the lyrics to Edison. <laughs> I find that the song Edison is very reminiscent of Bee Gees first and Idea. It sounds like it could be turn of the century, but two years on. Okay. And with the arrangement, Barry's vocal is very far forward in the mix, very clean, and he's singing with reverb. So you're talking of the the original version, or the this is Edison as it's on the album. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because on the on the demo, he's, he's just sort of scattering the lyrics, isn't he? Yeah. Just you know what first thing that comes into his head and filling in where the arrangement yeah. can be put by yeah. Shepherd. I really like the wordplay in this song, particularly with the lyric "All of the world can taste his glory." You be the man to write his story and the double entendre between his story and history. So you'll be the man to write history. You'll be or the his man story. to write his story. And which later Michael Jackson would do, wouldn't he? Oh, yeah. With his, yeah. Uh, album. his album. It's not often that the Bee Gees go for double entendre or overtly witty wordplay. It's nice to see it here. No, I think so, yes. At 2 minutes 20 into Edison, there is a key change. The chords change from G sharp to A major, and that made me wonder whether this change of key was part of the original composition, or if it was a result of the speed of the song being altered during the mix. Listening to the demo Barbara Came to Stay, the key change isn't there, which is why I think it might have been something that was done during post-production. Yes. I mean, for me, this is sort of a little gem of the album. It's very catchy. It sort of changes the mood a bit after the first, you know, the first side, and then you switch over and you got obviously Marley put driving. It leads on to this one, so we've got two fairly up tempo songs. It's just a bit of light relief. Yeah. How are you scoring it? I've gone actually with it because I prefer it to the last one, so I'm going to go with the seven. And I'm back down to the six. You're back down to the six, but uh, I think it'll all change for the next one. Yes. I regard this song as Barry's pretty number for the album. Yes, I do as well. I mean, this to me, like it is another single. Looking at it, they only reached first of May, didn't they? And Lamplight is the only single. So, had this have been done 15, 20 years ago, without doubt, this one would have been a, been a follow up. But it did find its way out beyond Odessa. It was on Best of Bee Gees 2. That's it, yeah. Because obviously, first of May went on the Best of Bee Gees 1, and this one's gone on to uh, number 2. And it also found its way on to a movie. Yeah from 1971 called Melody or Sealed with a Loving Kiss also featured four other songs it had Give Your Best to Love Somebody didn't they revamp an old Australian recording is it Morning in Morning My Life, life is which, on which is right. really good yeah, yeah 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 which is also on Bee Gees, yeah. Best of Bee Gees Volume yeah. 2 it's also worthy of note that this song would go on to I presume it was the inspiration for the title of Andy Gibbs 
band from the early 70s called Melody Fair, except Fair is spelled F-A-Y-R-E. Oh, okay. I believe it was Barbara that gave them the name. All right, so Barbara did come to stay somewhere then. She came to stay and she gave them the name. Yeah. Just going through some notes, and it, it actually was released as a single, but um, in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, I was assuming it was released in 71 to coincide with the film, and it managed to get to number three. It was also released as a B-side in South Africa. What was the A-side? Marley Put Drive. I mean, I would have swapped it round. Also worthy of note that uh, Barry sees that Melody Fair was probably influenced by Eleanor Rigby. I was wanting to make the same kind of statement. Funny you should say that. I thought it was quite Beatlesque. And I, in, my, in my notes when I was writing this, I, I put Beatlesque. And I thought it, it would fit onto any of the previous Bee Gees albums. Yes. Because it, it's quite a standard Bee Gees song, it, isn't it? It's what Birdie told me from Horizontal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a bit of a lost classic, really. I yeah. think. But uh, and also, I have to mention the strings. The you know the sweeping strings on it. And they're beautiful. <laughs> So how did uh, Melody fare for you with the scores? I've gone with an 8 on this one. And for me, a 7. How can you tell by looking at me? How can you tell you like what you see? Suddenly there's a boy in the rain alone. Suddenly there's a girl in the rain alone. It's so amazing to hear Morris finally taking a lead on a Bee Gees song. This is his first in the spotlight. I mean, it's still in a little bit of the Baroque style, I think, going back to 67. Mm-hmm. It's a nice one because it's quite underplayed, I think. It's just really just guitar and piano. And it sounds to me like the older brother to Lay It On Me, which would then come on two years on. Oh, yeah, yeah. That similar style. Well, it's just, it's, it's just a change, isn't it? Yeah. So are, are we still on side two with this one? The third track into side two. Yeah. Definitely side two has got a different feel to it, hasn't it? Yeah, as we'll then see in the next couple of tracks. And but... going back to the original, this being a sort of concert album, I think this is where, or probably the last track in this one, is where it sort of wanders off into whatever. I can't see how this fits into the concept of Odessa. So, I mean, the next song's Whisper, Whisper, so suddenly they whisper, whisper, but <laughs> I just can't see where it goes into to any storyline at all. As you said, the arrangement was stripped back. There's fantastic harmonies from Barry. Helps to strengthen Morris's voice. His voice is underused, isn't it, as, as a solo? I mean, brilliant in harmonies and backing and everything, and sometimes his voice is quite similar to Barry, so you're not always sure whether he's singing a little bit more than what you think he is. This one, I think, Chris, was recorded in October. I really love this song. I think it's fantastic. Seven out of ten. Well, I've gone with a seven as well. And on to the next track. Whisper, whisper.
At the beginning of Whisper Whisper, there is an introduction in A major running down and up the scale, and that builds a sense of tension and anticipation for the opening vocal. And it's almost not hearing that introduction, you then wouldn't expect the rest of the song to be how it is. And I find that Barry is singing in a cynical tone. There's a sense of spite in his lyrics. But I couldn't work out whether this song is sung from the perspective of a drug or the perspective of a drug dealer. Oh, right. So what, what, where did you read that in, then? I see that in Whisper Whisper, What Have You Got? I got something that you need a lot. Stop me and buy one. You can see better, but you better not. And then much later on in the song, doesn't matter what your name is, I can do a million things to you. No explanations, sexual patience, most of the nation's doing it too. Oh, right. It's like a, a, a drug on a drugstore shelf calling out for someone. Oh, that's, so that's right. my that's interpretation. A, that's an unusual way of looking at it. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd not really looked into it that deep before, so uh, that's interesting. But I love the instrumental break around 1 minute 17, and then there's another break at 2 minutes 30 with some awesome drumming from Colin. Because this one was the first one they recorded during the break from the UK, oh, sorry, the US tour. And I think Vince did play guitar in one part, because the song was sort of split into two parts, yes. looking at it, and uh, Vince did play on the first one, but when they got back to England, his part was erased, but the part that he played on the guitar in the second part of the song, that that's still in the finished production. And it, I don't know if you realise, Chris, but on this side, there's, there's no Robin vocal. Starting to understand why he went off and did his own yeah. thing. Yes, yeah, so there's nothing at all in this one. Obviously, you flip to the second LP and he's, he's off. And uh, whether it's just the style, the way that they decided to track it, he obviously started the album off with the first side, a couple of songs, and then it's just the way that it's been And with Lamplight, he then opens up side three or the second album. Yeah. I've given Whisper Whisper a six out of ten. And I've gone with a six as well. Now swapping the LP onto the second disc, we begin with Robin's moment in the spotlight. And it's Lamplight. And she said she won't be keep Okay, let's start off the argument. Should this have been the A-side instead of... Well, as I said previous, Chris, I I seriously think this should have been a double A-side. A little bit like Beatles did with Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. So there's always one side that tends to get played more than the other. So hence, they really went with First of May. But to be fair to Robin, it's as equally as good as as First of May. I I think it's a beautiful song. I agree. In my notes, it's Robin's moment on the album. Yeah, but as I say, it must have been an, an enviable decision what to go with unless they were going to keep it for the second single but they didn't it didn't even go there did it because I think by the time First of May was released and they'd come to do a second single Robin had left the group so probably that's why it explains there's only one single from the album it didn't materialise on volume two of Best of Bee Gees Safe so, by the Bell was on there but not Lamplight Lamplight which Rick Rubin played me the other day and I hadn't heard it in 40 years and it just blew me away <laughs> that should have been a number one record <laughs> you know 
but we weren't in a position to choose our own singles. In the opening coda of Lamplight, Robin is singing in French, and I translated it rather crudely through Google Translate, and it came out as, Come on, come again, honey. I'll wait patiently, under the lamp, in the old avenue. And then we go into the song. And Lamplight was completed within three versions, from the beginning, the demo, to then the final version of the song, which made its way onto Odessa. So it was a quick recording, Yes. And it's the first version that you can then hear on the bonus disc. So you nearly get in all the whole journey from Genesis to yeah. completion. I think that's the same on this with 1st of May as well. Yes. In Lamplight, we see a return of the Gregorian chanting from Odessa. And they are backing Robin's vocals as harmonies. We, we seemed to say at the beginning, didn't we? we thought Odessa was more or less Robin's song. So it seems quite apt that the chanting appears in that song and again in another Robin song. But surprisingly, as we'll get onto in a future episode, it never appears on Robin's Reign. No. It, it, you got rid of the chanting at the drum machine, didn't we? <laughs> Come well, this was recorded towards the end of October, and literally straight after that, they went on a, on a month long European tour. And Robin Stingwood also also confirms in the UK there's been a musical disagreement between the Gibb brothers and Vince, who prefers blues, which is not the Bee Gees bag. Very 60s, isn't it? <laughs> and then another quote saying that I didn't get along with Hugh Gibb. Vince will, uh, will cite his biggest reasons for leaving in the 2006 reissue. So obviously tension was starting to mount during this, not only with Vince, really, to be fair, was it? There was also Robin. It can't have been easy... For Vince and Colin being with three brothers, and I'd imagine that Barbara and Hugh would have given the three Gibbs all the attention. Yeah, so it no. must have been difficult. I mean, the, I mean, we've we've gone through all these albums, and obviously we've we've covered, and we're still in '68, and we're on a double album, aren't we? And there's always been an album released. Yes. So I, I can totally see where they're coming from. The stress that they must have been touring idea that had just just been released, and even during this tour we're getting dates in which they're going to America and recording for Odessa. Yeah, and I mean... There's no stop. To me, they're doing the same thing as what the Beatles did in 63 to 66. Yes. They're doing two two albums a year, plus touring all over the place. They're fitting a week into a day. Yeah. Whereas, obviously, the Beatles stopped touring in 66 and thought, that's enough. And so, 67 onwards, for the next three albums, they were able to work at their own pace. It's a shame, really, because that's what the Bee Gees should have done. Yes. Took a year off touring, concentrate on this album... And then if they want to do any solo stuff in the meantime... Which they we see them do that in the 80s and 90s, they yeah. take that approach. It's really interesting to hear about all of that, and it's always worth looking at the wider context as opposed to just listening to the music. Remember how old they were at this period and what, just what they were doing 18, and how much yeah. they were going through. So to conclude with Lamplight, what was your score for it? I've gone with a nine on this one. That's higher than I thought you'd give it. Yeah, yeah no. I'm no. a seven. You're a seven? Oh, yeah. okay. See the children play the ball See them play along the hall It makes me cry to see them smile I see the moon, I see the sky 
Polydor must have liked The Sound of Love, or certainly the sound of its title, because they used it for the name of a release in 1970 in which Odessa is condensed down to just one LP, so just down to two sides. But as for the song itself, I consider The Sound of Love to be the Bond theme that never was. Oh, that's interesting, because obviously hearing it from younger ears, and I've always used to hearing it, you know, just as as an album track. It's got that bombast that you get from the Bond theme, this is the grand scale that's throughout this album. Yeah, because I mentioned on the first track, very cinematic, so you think this one could be grouped with that one as well? Yeah. And there's great thudding drums and an orchestra going into the chorus, beautifully arranged, very poignant lyric from Barry. So do you think, so far, looking at this this album, there's every track is by all three. But this goes back to what we said, something like Genesis or, or even McCartney and Lennon, Lennon and McCartney. They, they all, whoever wrote it, they still went in the same manner. I'm wondering, sort of from 68 onwards, nearly, nearly everything is, is under the BRM label, isn't it? I think you've hit the nail on the head with that Lennon and McCartney analogy. By putting... Barry, Robin and Morris on the writing credit helps to appease all three brothers. What score have you given to Sound of Love? Well, I've gone with a seven. And I've given it an eight. As we always do with every episode of our podcast, just give your best. (laughs) That's all you can do. It's a square dance, Mr Marshall. It's a square dance on the floor. It's a square dance, Mr Perkins. It's a square dance to be sure. To be sure. Just a clown that used to run around. I used to have a million friends. I used to start where everybody is, but I just give my best to my friends. This is a wonderfully evocative little number. It's in that old west. Square dance. Well, yeah, I've, I've put on my note here, country hoedown. Yes. It's, it's a bit of a barn dance, isn't it? The Bee Gees do Rocky Raccoon. Yeah, that's it. This Old West, life on the frontier genre is a style that many popular artists have tapped into, and they always do it very well. I mentioned the Beatles with Rocky Raccoon, but then also Phil Collins with The Roof is Leaking. And it's a shame that Give Your Best wasn't used for the square dance scene in Back to the Future 3 instead of ZZ Top's version of Double Back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably need the beards for them, though. (laughs) (laughs) There are some extra musicians joining this session. There's Bill Keith on the banjo and Tex Logan, which is a brilliantly American name. He plays on the fiddle, and that all really helps contribute to the American Western square dance soundscape of Give Your Best. It does say here, actually, that it was virtually completed in one take. I think only a few new vocals were added in England. And I think on the on the reissue, you've got the original vocal and uh, slight change in lyrics as well. In the Ultimate Biography, Colin even described it as the best recording session he'd ever been to. So 
clearly a lot of fun happening in the studio with this one. So who does the vocal bit and the introduction? Sounds to me like Robin. Was it? It's a square dance, Mr Marshall. It's a square dance on the floor. That's it. It's a square dance, to be sure. I'm not a big country music person, but with that in mind, I think this is really well done. It's a 7 out of 10. I've gone with a 6. The only link that I could get between the Bee Gees and a live performance of Seven Seas Symphony is um, the television special broadcast on the 28th of December, uh, 1968. Lulu's back in town. This was following the engagement between Lulu and Morris. And the show provided Morris with the opportunity to demonstrate his keyboard prowess when the 32-piece Johnny Harris Orchestra backed him on Seven Seas Symphony. So he played it live then. And even the the version that we know from the album, that was all recorded as live. There's no overdubs. I believe that has Morris on piano. Oh, okay. There. But that's all, it's all a Bill Shepard arrangement. But it's a beautiful song, beautiful isn't song. it? I, the three words I would describe it are romantic, majestic, but bittersweet. Yeah. Talking of sweet, do you think it reminds you of Chocolate Symphony without the yes, vocals? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that. Also, piano sounded similar in the way that it's mic'd to uh, Bowie's Life on Mars. Yes, it does. Th- this song is, is in the background all the time, isn't it? Right from when the BG started up to then, they were due an instrumental. Yes. You, you know, the way the music, the way they write, it, one had to appear sooner or later. Instead of waiting for one, we get three. But any of these three songs, instrumentals, they could have had lyrics. The next one does. They were just white. Oh, the, from... the initial. Yes, the initial demo. I like these three um, instrumentals. I don't think they really went down that road again, did they? Seven Seas Symphony and the following two instrumentals go back to the concept idea of Odessa. With Seven Seas Symphony, I'm getting the impression given from the title Seven Seas. This is all about the ship Veronica about to set off on its doom laden voyage. And there's melancholy throughout the piece. There's orchestral sweeps and minor progressions and certain motifs throughout that put you in mind that something's not quite right. Something's going to go wrong with this journey, which it does. It it sinks. So I can certainly imagine that if Odessa was initially proposed to be a concept, that these instrumentals would have been part of the story. And perhaps they could have had lyrics, which the next instrumental, With All Nations, did have lyrics at first, as we said. But all of these pieces, in addition to the opening track, Odessa, all feel like one continuous suite they could all be sequenced together to form one continuous story as opposed to being sequenced throughout the album. But as they are here, I like them as individual instrumentals 
and whether or not they're related to the concept of Odessa, whether or not the concept of Odessa actually exists on this album, I really like them as instrumentals, and this is, yeah, this is wonderful. The only thing I can think of where they went down that route was on Living Eyes, on the last track. Yes. Is it Be... Be What You Are. Be What You Are. Very reminiscent. Yeah. Where that ends up with a, sort of a link from a few songs from the album, and it all ties up, which was, which was to- at the time totally different from um, Spirits Having Thrown, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could actually hear Robin. Yeah. That's true, isn't it? I love this. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. I'm an 8 as well. We will move into With All Nations, which I regard as a coda to 70s Symphony as opposed to its own piece. When I think of Odessa and I think of the track listing, I tend to think of 70s Symphony and With All Nations as just one piece split in two. With All Nations acts as a response, an answer to 70s Symphony, and the mood and the feeling that With All Nations conveys for me is that of salvation, almost like the wreck of the Veronica is being lifted from the ocean. So once again, going back to the cinematic nature of the album that you and I have mentioned earlier on. There were originally vocals which you can find on the bonus disc from the Odessa reissue. I'll read the lyrics out as there's only one verse, and that's With all nations behind us, we shall all be free. And as people, we can see a bright and decent end light. Yeah, those lyrics definitely suit being in an anthem. Oh, I think it does. You feel like stand to attention, don't yes. you, and hear it. Any reason why it was left off? I've no idea. I, th- I think it probably, they just wanted the flow from the previous one, this one, and then finish the side off. That's the only thing I can think of. They managed to come up with a much better anthem than John Lennon did on Mind Games. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Is that the... Uh, um, Newtopian. Newtopian, that's it. Nothing, silence. Yeah. And this one gets a seven. Nearly as good as... Yeah, I'll go with a seven as well. Seventy Symphony. And that brings us to the end of side three, turning over the second disc onto side four. My brother is friendly for reasons If I am the same Just for four hundred seasons we all live in rain. So I laugh at your face. You're only one race. Well, I, I like this one, Chris, but for me, it's the verse, it outweighs the chorus. I agree. It's beautiful, the, the start of it, the harmonies, but. I laugh in your face. I, I just don't think it goes with the, with the verse. And you think it's going to go into something different? I mean, in fact, after listening to the two instrumentals, 
this sort of flows into this track. If you listen on a CD, it flows really nicely into this. But then it just jars me when the chorus comes in. Mm. There is crossover with Idea, because I Laugh In Your Face was recorded on the 12th of July, 1968, which is the same day that the Bee Gees recorded I've Gotta Get A Message To You. And I Laugh In Your Face was initially considered as the B-side to Message To You, but it was ultimately swapped with Kitty Can. Do you agree with that change? I think so. And, and then leave this one yeah. as, a, as a new one. We do know there was other stuff they could have put as the B-side, but... Uh... They went with Kitty Can. No, I think this one's better leaving with this. Yeah. Like you, I think that I Laugh In Your Face has a beautiful verse, really well written and very haunting, but it's let down by a chorus that I think belongs to a different song. So with that in mind, I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. I, I, it's, I've given it 8 for the verse and 6 for the chorus, so I'll go with the 7. Balance it out. Well, I think this is quite a strange song, actually, because since listening to the reissue, I've got to feel I prefer the the original version. I do with, as well. With a fuzzy guitar. It's, the first thing I thought of was John Lennon. Yeah. Sort of around the slow version of Revolution. That's, that's the feel I get. But I can understand why they, they erased the guitar and changed it for the orchestra, because obviously the orchestra fits in with the, with the album. Whereas electric guitar doesn't fit the album yeah. at all. So, I mean, you could have put the, this one, go back an album on yeah. there. But for this one, I, I can see what, 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 their, um, what the thought was. From the research I could find for this song, lyrics are supposedly written by Robin, or certainly the I Declared War on Spain lyric. And yet in the final version of Never Say Never Again, and also in the demo that we spoke about, Robin seems absent. So was that lyric, was that his only contribution to the lyrics and was the rest Barry? Or was it Barry doing a Robin song? Because Barry wasn't keen on the Declared War on Spain lyric. He said it, he believed it was a bit unromantic and he wanted something a bit more direct or more simplistic as Robin yeah, regarded I mean, it. Never Say Never Again to what? I mean, I suppose I declared war on Spain. I, Whereas Robin I, really liked it and he persisted and it kept it just like his long hair. He oh, managed, right. managed to keep it. <laughs> Listening closely towards the end of Never Say Never Again, and I detected the opening melody line from the French lyric at the beginning of Lamplight. Right. Coming yeah. back. Well, do you think that's that must have been to do with the uh, arrangements? I should think, and it nicely harmonises with the mm. lyric. But yeah, yeah, that's a good spot. This one sits comfortably at a six out of ten. Yeah, I'm going. I've gone with a six as well. When 
I was small and Christmas trees were tall. We used to laugh while others used to play. Don't ask me why, but time has passed us by. This is another very pretty Barry Gibb song. Yeah, it's one of those sort of took on the heartstrings songs, isn't it? And I think only a few sleigh bells away from being a Christmas single. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right, actually. But I mean, it's got Barry all over this, hasn't it? Yeah, and a gorgeous arrangement. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a it's a timeless classic. This one that doesn't get played too much on the radio. No, I think it's a shame that they didn't perform this as the Bee Gees didn't perform this live, not even in an old medley along with other songs. But Barry did perform it in 2013. He played it. Oh, okay. But yeah, it's a shame we don't get the Bee Gees singing this one, but. Knowing the history of it, I can see why it's probably been left out. Yes. Because, I mean, if they did it, would, would they start with this one or would they start with Lamplight? <laughs> Bill Shepard manages to convey the feeling of nostalgia that uh, Barry is hinting at with the lyrics. Yes, because that's what it is, isn't it? It's, yeah, when it's, Christmas trees were tall. Yeah, that's it. Now Christmas trees are small, vice versa. So do you think he's, he's thinking of sort of Christmas memories? Using the Christmas tree as the metaphor for nostalgia growing older... Things gone by, time gone by. Yes, that's, that's the way I, I'd sort of think of it as. Unfortunately, the song has no proper ending. It seems to fade out like an unfinished thought. That's my biggest criticism with it. We've said this before on a few others, that uh, we're always a little bit disappointed the way these sort of just fade out to nothing. But this and Lamplight are the two clear singles. Maybe also Melody Fair and Suddenly could be a, a single. Yeah. But I did, I did read that in some, some of the music magazines, it was stating that Lamplight was going to be the new single. Originally, it was going to be Odessa. Yep. And then they were then going to go with Lamplight. So I don't know whether it was what the decision was to turn it round. As you said earlier, and I think it's true, Odessa would have been a ballad and Lamplight would have been a ballad too many of yeah. that style. Yeah. First of May is different. Still a ballad, but a different style of ballad. With regards to the song's beginnings, Morris says that he and Barry were at the piano. Morris started playing the chords and Barry started singing. That's when you get the When I Was Small and Christmas Trees Were Tall. They put a demo down with a vocal and they kept the piano track. And Barry recalls that the song's title came from the birthday of his dog Barnaby. Oh, okay. Born on the 1st of May. This also featured in the film Melody that we mentioned earlier, along with various other tracks. Although the decision between whether to choose 1st of May or Lamplight was a a point of disagreement between Barry and Robin, Morris, as ever the man in the middle, said that uh, he wasn't too bothered. He <laughs> says that I was always the sexy bass player in the background while Robin stood centre. I'm quite proud of my piano playing and had a good chance to express it on 1st of May. So he's just happy to, to play the instruments regardless of what the song is. It's difficult for him, isn't it? Because as his song says, he's man in the middle. But they did actually perform 1st of May on the Tom Jones special. It was part of a medley with I Started a Joke. When was this? Well, it's taped in January, so obviously a month before the single came out. But I, I assume with all TV programmes, it, there's always about a four or five week gap between recording and showing. So I, it must have tied in with the release of 1st of May. And 1st of May was released on the 14th of February. 14th of February, 1899. The British ship Veronica was also oh, yeah. at the time. So there are some links still, as well as it also, of course, being Valentine's Day. 
So an aptly romantic number to release. I've also noted, Chris, at this time, uh, Barry was interviewed by the NME and obviously had big plans because he uh, says that he expects to begin work on his Hollywood movie debut in, in the Western with hoping to uh, work with uh, Clint Eastwood. But like, like all the other projects that they talked about, it, it's pie in the sky, isn't it? Never materialises. No. He also says that the Bee Gees will no longer tour for six months as well. But as we know, that probably led to, what, two years, was it, about 71? Yes, yeah. And they were doing two years, promoting two years on. Two years on since they toured? Yeah. <laughs> I've gone for an eight out of ten. I've gone for a nine on this one. That leads us into the last song on the album. the three instrumentals on Odessa this is by far my favourite I like it. it it starts off a little bit sinister yeah it does and it ends sinister as yeah, well yeah um, but then it gets all bombastic and, and uh, yeah I mean everything's thrown at it isn't it I mean it ends the album pretty much you couldn't follow that could you were Odessa to be a film this would be the soundtrack to the final scene of the film going off into the sunset, going, playing over the credits. Yeah. It sort of reminds me of the end bit of, you, it's, you know, a weepy film, and then, then you get this music at the end of the film, don't you? And Which is very typical of 1960s British films. Yeah. They, it just conjures up a picture in your mind, doesn't it? It reminded me also a lot of John Williams and his amazing work soundtracking Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Reminded me a lot of that. Yeah. And there's a powerful choral melody once again conveying the majestic tone of the album. And right at the end, a haunting, ghost-like set of voices come drifting through through the ending of the piece, around 2 minutes 53. And again, it takes us back to that ethereal realm that we were taken to in the first track, Odessa. So, listening to them instrumentals, who do you think was behind them? Morris. Purely on the basis that he's the most instrumental. He's always on bass, piano, organ, guitar. Going ahead, if you look at Robin's Saved by the Bell, there's a song there called Moon Anthem. And there's also one called um, Ghost of Christmas Past. I can see what you mean. It does. And... It could be an involvement from all three. Some of them could be Robin-led. Yeah, I think they're all versatile, aren't they? Yes. Doing them, I mean. And then obviously you've got the Hudson's Fallen River. Or Fallen Farmer Ferdinand Hudson on the album, but then Hudson's Fallen Wind. That's it, on the, on the long version as well. 12 so. minutes, very progressive. Yes, it is. Which British opera and all of these, well, this whole album can be described as progressive, but certainly the three instrumentals. So definitely moving a different field, or Robin was. You would never have thought, listening to Bee Gees first, that they would be doing things like no. this. In such a short time as yes. well. Yeah. 
With the title of this instrumental as the British Opera, it's worth mentioning that one of the proposed original titles for the album was the American Opera alongside Masterpiece. Do you think that was because it originally wanted to record it all in America? Because it started off in there, didn't it? Yeah. So what are you going to go score-wise on this one, Chris? Eight out of ten. I've gone with eight. Very impressive end to the album. To an impressive end to an impressive album. This album is one that, when I first heard it, it, it sort of just went by me. But uh, the more you listen to it, it, it is, it's impressive. And I think it's grown in stature. Have you always been familiar with it as just being 17 songs or... Yes. Uh, so no, has it ever been two no, separate albums? I got. I never, never seen the vinyl of it, so it was always on cassette for me. So, just on one, as I said before, somebody made a cassette for me. So it's just, it's just, and it works as one long piece. I think so. When it's uninterrupted, that brings us to the end of part one. In the next episode, we'll be looking at bonus material, critical reception, and uh, there's quite a few songs they gave away which we'll cover. I think there's one group that um, we're lucky enough to get five five compositions. Mm. And with that, we'll leave you with a favourite outtake of ours. And it's a pity it weren't on the album. <laughs> we'll see you next time. I've been in love With many a stranger Knowing the danger I've been in love Say what I am Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepson. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeegeespodcast at gmail.com. Dipped into the bone